Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I hope that many of you were able to join us last week as we began this three-week initiative called Beyond Borders, our response to the worldwide crisis. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear Keith Draper from World Relief DuPage last week, I highly encourage you to go on our website under resources uh, and listen to the sermon from last week. It's also on iTunes. If you don't know what those are, come into the office. We'll help you, we'll help you find it. Keith educated us on what he calls the largest refugee crisis the world has ever known, happening in our world right now today, caused by about 15 global conflicts that displace people from their homes. We heard about the experiences of many refugees, even got to meet a couple of them in a luncheon last week, who were forcibly displaced from their homes and placed into refugee camps, much like the camp that's been set up for you out in the garden court, and I'd love for you to spend some time there today or in the next couple weeks reading and, and pondering that. We learned that the most fortunate refugees are able to come to the U.S. after a process of three to five years, with most refugees waiting well over a decade to be able to come to America. We learned that less than one-half of one percent actually realize the dream of a new life in America. Most importantly, we learned to confront our fears about refugees, looking at the story of Paul's conversion and Ananias's important role in his restoration of sight, Keith encouraged us to let go of the fear of others and instead replace that with a holy fear of God and desire to be obedient to him. So my task today is to build off of that great start last week and to ask the question, what does the Bible say about refugees? This is not a token question that we ask here at this church, but rather an all-important one. We believe that the Bible is the word of God and it is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. I learned that in confirmation. I live that every day. In other words, we look to the Bible for wisdom first. When we're seeking wisdom for anything in our lives or anything in this world, we go first and foremost to God's word, not self-help books, not cable news, not the internet, not the academy. No, we go to the Bible first and we ask, what does God have to say here? So I felt like this was an optimal morning for us to look at how we go to God's word for wisdom on any number of issues and then look at some of the common pitfalls in doing so. And I'm going to close later on this morning by using the refugee crisis as a case study for how to ask that question, what does the Bible say about blank? Paul describes the Bible as living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. That's his way of saying that the Bible is not like any other book. It's like no other interaction with a written word that we could have. So if you have questions, if you need wisdom, if you want to hear from God, this is the place to start because it's a living and active book. I'm so thrilled when I hear someone say something like, I had questions about something and I went to God's word and, and I asked him what he might be trying to say to me and he really, really spoke to me. Nothing makes me more pleased than to hear that. 
This is called hermeneutics. That's your vocab word for the day, okay? Hermeneutics. What's hermeneutics? It's the art of listening to God's word so that we might understand and appropriate it. The art of listening to God's word so that we might understand it and appropriate it. I want you to go to God's word and I want you all to practice hermeneutics. That said, I want to warn you against several common pitfalls that confuse God's word for us and lead us astray. So I'm indebted uh, to my hermeneutics professor, Klein Snodgrass, for these five rules of hermeneutics. First is this, context is king, both historical and textual context. We have to remember that when we come to God's word, I feel like I should be holding a Bible because I keep going like this. Uh, when, when we need to remember that when we're holding God's word, that the Bible is old. It's, it's, it's really old. It's the earliest portions of, of God's word are over 3,000 years old. And the New Testament, which we often go to, is, is, is almost 2,000 years old since it's been written. Each of these books in the Bible were wit written within a certain historical context and to a certain historical context. The more that we can understand the context of the original author and audience, the better we can discern God's voice and understand how he spoke and, and how he might still be speaking through these texts. There's often layers that, that lead to amazing aha moments when we understand the context. And, and I find that when I understand the context of these books, it gives me a deep reverence for the authors of the Bible and how they allowed God to speak through them. When we forsake historical context, when we're not interested in that, we're really coming to the scriptures as 21st century consumers. And I don't know about you, but that's not something I want to do. Textual context, not just historical, but textual context is also very important. We often look at a verse or two in the Bible, and then we don't look at the surrounding verses or chapters and choosing instead to kind of pick out those small few words that form a verse that makes sense to us and seems to speak to us, that we can understand, that, that, that seems to speak clearly. A good example of this, just an example, is, is from Philippians 4.13, one of those popular verses in the New Testament that, that many people know. In it, in it, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Many of us know that one, right? These powerful words, they've ended up in, in yearbook quotes and motivational speeches as a way of encouraging people that with God's power they can be anything, they can do anything. And you could argue that within the character of God, this is true, God is a powerful God. But if we read the surrounding verses, the verses surrounding verse 13, we realize that Paul is not using this as a self-empowering motivational tool. The verse right before it, verse 12, notes, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, in, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The focus in Philippians chapter 4 is what the believer can do through the strength that Christ gives, not through self-empowerment. This is not a promise that Christians will have superpowers or that they will be invincible or immune to life's challenges. Instead, the promise of Philippians 4.13 is that we will have strength from the Lord to faithfully endure the difficulties that arise in our lives and find contentment in them. Paul's striking words 
faith are not meant to pull him out of where he was, but to make him content in the midst of his sufferings. That's a different message, isn't it? And we learn that from context. You see, the immediate context is important. By reading broadly, we avoid proof texting or or misusing scripture. So I want you to read broadly and read within context. That might seem overwhelming to you, like, like I'm asking you to not only read the word, but to also understand the ancient context and be a textual critic as well. I would say that a good study Bible will help you an awful lot in terms of context. We're also working on reinstituting and setting up our, our library in a different spot so that you can have some other tools to go to to understand uh, the context of what you're reading. A second but related rule, which I appreciate, is the text can't mean today what it didn't mean back when it was written. It cannot mean today what it didn't mean back when it was written. It's important to remember that while God's word is designed to speak to us, that God reveals himself through it, it was not written for us. If we can remember this, it keeps us from many of the abuses of God's word. I can't help but think of, when I think of an example for this, I think of the response to Hurricane Katrina. I remember reading several pastors who argued that this disaster was the fulfillment of a number of different texts, punishments for the sins of the city of New Orleans, sins of sexual promiscuity or occult practices or drunkenness or gambling. And they used passages from Daniel 12 or or 22 or even the Noah narrative in in Genesis chapter 6, often creating a one-to-one corollary that this storm is what scripture is talking about. And while there might be wisdom to glean from this and God may have something to say from these texts, I think that's a scary way of interpreting scripture. Those texts can't mean today what they didn't mean back then. We ought to be wary of any theology that claims to finally understand a text based on current modern realities. This is more often than not how cults and various fringe groups form and thrive. As we try and navigate much of modern life, we have to recognize that the Bible doesn't speak expressly to a great many things in our lives, things like technology and the way that we understand it, global business or retirement or bank accounts or how about dating? The Bible has wisdom for some of these things, some of these areas, but we ought to be careful to speak definitively on any of these based on scripture because they were not realities in the ancient world. Which brings me to number three. Rule number three, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself, coupled with God's own character. If we want to understand a, a section of Scripture, the, one of the first places that we should look is the rest of Scripture. Before we come to conclusions about a text, we ought to ask, does my understanding of this text fit within the larger biblical story and narrative? For instance, if you're reading 1 Corinthians 14, you'll read the verse, women should remain silent in church. They're not allowed to speak, but they should stay in submission. Now, even looking at the immediate context, you could walk away from that text thinking that maybe maybe women should remain silent in church. But when we look at Paul's other teaching on women throughout all of his writings, when we look at his life, even as we look at the larger biblical narrative, Old and New Testament, we see women leaders of the faith, female leaders, both national leaders and church leaders. And we see numerous teachings from Jesus, Paul, and others that affirm 
the gifts of all humans regardless if they are a man or a woman and, and speak of a broad theology in which through Jesus Christ there is no male or female. So did Paul have a momentary lapse of judgment in 1 Corinthians 14? No. When we realize that our understanding of a text doesn't fit within the larger biblical narrative, we can look more closely and realize that the Corinthian church had a specific issue with a number of specific women who were actively trying to disrupt services of worship and stand in the way of the gospel. And I say they should stay silent in that scenario. But God forbid that we read this passage and silence women in the church. Scripture does serve as its own great interpreter. So when scripture is unclear, we can always turn to the character of God as well, holding up what we know of the character of God, grace, justice, righteousness, love, presence. And that will often guide us in our interpretation as well. Does it seem in the character of God to silence all women in church? I think you know my answer to that question. Fourth, fourth rule. Where the Bible wrestles, we should wrestle too. The Bible is not a rule book. It's not a perfect theological treatise. It's not a policy that we read. It's a compilation of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a span of more than a century in three different languages and spanning three different continents. We should not be surprised that there are con contradictions and confusions and inconsistencies in this book because this is a diverse book that is unlike any other book that's ever been written. So when the Bible wrestles with a certain topic, we should feel free to wrestle as well. I think my best example of this is our denomination's stance on baptism. Many evangelical churches, most notably our, our Baptist brothers and sisters, look at baptism in the New Testament and come to the conclusion that it only makes sense for baptism to be practiced by those who can profess faith in Jesus Christ, which is why they observe adult baptism or believer's baptism. Looking at much of Paul's theology surrounding baptism, it's hard to argue this, but we do have a couple instances in where the entire household was being brought to baptism in the book of Acts, which would have included young children. The Bible wrestles with how and when baptism is done, and so our denomination chose to wrestle as well. There are many more instances of adult baptism than infant baptism in scripture, but because this diverse book gives us diverse practices, we wrestle, which is how we came to our current practice of baptism, of honoring both infant and believer baptism. It's a beautiful example of hermeneutics to me. There are many other places where scripture wrestles, topics like divorce or gifts of the spirit or cultural engagement. When scripture wrestles, we should too. And there should be some room for healthy disagreement in the midst of that wrestling. Last rule. We shouldn't approach scripture to buttress our views and beliefs. I hope that you know this. We should approach God's word humbly with an open mind and an open heart. The most faithful and fruitful hermeneutics come when we approach God's word asking, Lord, help me understand Give me wisdom through your word, rather than saying, Lord, would you please confirm what I already believe through your word? The Bible was not written in order for you to be able to win arguments or to prop up your beliefs. It's meant to convict us and correct us 
and change us through the work of God's Spirit. So if this book stops surprising you, if the Word of God stops surprising you, then I think you're not approaching it in the right way. Okay, so everybody still with me? Keeping those rules in mind, I want to ask the original question that we began to ask at the beginning, which is what does the Bible say about refugees and how are we supposed to respond? So let's look at our text again from Leviticus 19. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The message is pretty clear from this text, right? The word alien means foreigner, someone from another place without land or title in a country that is not their own. This category would cover what we in the 21st century would designate as refugees and immigrants, by the way. The text says not to oppress the alien, but even more, we should love them as we are called to love any other neighbor as ourselves, always keeping in mind that we were once aliens, particularly true of those Israelites and their experience of slavery in Egypt. But let's, let's walk this forward. Let's test our interpretation through our five rules, okay? First, context is king. The historical context is pretty well known of Leviticus 19. The book of Leviticus is a collection of laws that were given to the people of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai after their escape from Egypt and before they entered the promised land. The whole message of Leviticus is that God is an approachable God, but that we need to approach him on his own terms because he is holy. So as we approach him, we need to do so striving for holiness ourselves. The immediate scripture context in chapter 19 is that Moses is repeating a, a set of laws that he has already given as a reminder that obedience to these laws is a sign to God that you are indeed striving for holiness, that you are approaching him the right way. Therefore, our adherence to these commands about aliens within our borders is a matter of obedience. Not just doing the right thing, but being obedient to God and striving for holiness in our lives. Second rule, the text can't mean what it, now what it didn't mean then. We need to be careful to read our current refugee crisis into Leviticus 19. Remember, the Israelites, when they're receiving this at least, they, they don't have borders to call their own in order to accept and care for aliens. They are in the wilderness right now. They are awaiting borders to call their own. Certainly, these laws were retold once they enter the promised land and, and far beyond that. We're even telling these today. But we should note that we can't really read our distinction between refugees and immigrants into this passage because the term alien covers both. Third, let's allow Scripture to interpret itself. Let's test what we're sort of understanding about this text with the rest of Scripture. Leviticus 19 stands up to the rest of Scripture's teaching on the alien within our borders. I think of the story of Ruth, the various stories of Israel in exile in Babylon. 
Jesus' teaching for the love of neighbor and his care for the Samaritan woman. And I think most poignantly for me, the, the Gentile mission in the book of Acts. What does it mean to extend the hand of Christ to others? All of scripture gives a resounding affirmation to this law in Leviticus 19. Fourth rule, does the Bible wrestle with refugees? Uh, not, not a lot, to be honest. Our wrestling comes more with how we understand refugees today. Romans 13.4 says that the government's job is to protect its citizens. That's what causes a lot of tension for us because of the prevalence of terrorism in our world today, and I know that you read the news just like I do. We can discuss the issue and, and even disagree fundamentally, hopefully with civility, on the government's balancing act of allowing aliens within our borders and, and still keeping us safe. But from this passage, it's clear to me that there is a biblical response to aliens who are already within our borders. We are to care for them and to treat them well and to identify with them. Last rule, we ought to come humbly and ask God, what do you have to say to me? I'm willing to be surprised, convicted, and even moved into action through your word, God. If we put this all together, you can see why we're partnering with World Relief and why we as a church want to get involved in refugee resettlement because the Bible tells us, even commands us, to do so. It is a way in which we display an obedience to God's word and a desire for righteous, holy living. Is there room for disagreement and dissonance or nuance even in how we strive to do right by our refugee neighbors? Absolutely. But for me, so long as our government allows refugees to come into our country, so long as there are refugees who I can literally call my neighbors here in DuPage County, I see an opportunity to live into the biblical calling to care for refugees and to show them the love of Christ. Not merely because the Bible says, commands me to do so, but because I want to be obedient to God. And I am aware that that's part of my story too. My great-grandparents were once refugees here. It could easily be me. So I hope you can see how this is not a political issue for me. It's a biblical issue. Big difference. When I ask, God, what does your word say about refugees? I see God's word speaking to our congregation and opening many doors for us to be obedient. May we do so when it comes to the issue of refugee care, but much more so this morning. May we be a people who constantly go to God's word for wisdom and understanding in all things, practicing hermeneutics and constantly seeking God's, seeking God's voice over all other voices. Amen? And amen. What I want to do to close today is I just want to take a couple minutes to practice really listening well. One of the tools that we have to do that is an ancient practice. It's called Lectio Divina. So I'm going to put up the text from this morning, again, from Leviticus 19. And what I want to do is I'm going to read this just a few times. We're going to do a little shortened version. Sometimes you do Lectio Divina, and it can uh, go on for a very long time. We're going to do a little shortened version this morning. What I want you to do is I want you to just close your eyes.
if you're comfortable doing so. I'm going to read this text for you. And what I want you to do is I want you to simply listen. I'm going to read this a few times in the next couple minutes. The first one, I want you to just rid yourself of distractions, rid yourself of what you might believe about this text, even anything that we've talked about already today. And I want you to just listen, to let God's word wash over you. I'm going to read it and then give a couple moments of silence. When an alien resides with you in the land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. <laughs> 